and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. As our listeners know, we've had several episodes in the past where we talked about the Stockton Economic Demonstration Project, the basic income pilot that's happening in Stockton right now. So we've talked to the folks involved with running the pilot, and we've heard a bit about what's been happening with the people actually receiving the money. But there was recently a series in New York Magazine that really went deeper on that. It it told the stories of how people's lives were, actually, what was happening with them, who they were before, and and what was happening in their day-to-day interactions and, and life, really, throughout receiving this cash. So I got to speak with the journalist who reported all of those profiles. So here is my conversation with Bliss Broyard. Bliss Broyard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, before we we get into the the details of this profile series you did, could you just tell us about the genesis of the project? Uh, Just how did it come about? So it was really one of these right place at right time kind of things. I was in L.A. with a friend and her brother was visiting her and her brother had been a mentor or was continuing to be a mentor to Mayor Michael Tubbs of Stockton. We were all having breakfast and he kept having to uh, text someone. And then he apologized after and said that he was mentoring this young mayor that he'd gotten to know when they both worked at Obama's White House. And uh, the mayor had recently announced a universal basic income pilot and was taking a lot of flack from kind of conservatives on Twitter. So he was sort of giving him some advice on how to handle it. And I had come from working for an organization called the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, where we specialized in journalism about inequality and had read at that point uh, about Y Combinator and it even kind of looked into if it was possible to cover that or the Ontario pilot um, and just logistically, well, Y Combinator wasn't sharing any of their recipients and the Ontario pilot just logistically, it was too hard to cover from the United States. So my years really perked up. And then I reached out to the mayor's office and his press officer, and uh, they liked the idea and talked to my editor at New York Magazine, and they loved it. And that's how it came to be. Yeah, one thing that's sort of unique about the Stockton Project is that they really encourage storytelling and, and getting out these individual stories. So I can definitely see how this would really dovetail with their whole mission. Um, and before we jump into those, could you just give us sort of a, a profile of Stockton? I think people who listen to this podcast have heard Stockton, Stockton, Stockton over and over again. Could you just tell us a little bit about your impressions of the city itself? Sure. Um, well, it's about 70 miles from Silicon Valley, but it's really a world apart. Um, it does have higher poverty rates, higher unemployment, higher crime rates, um, certainly than Silicon Valley and for the rest of California and the country. Um, it's dealing with a lot of the same issues that we think we identify with sort of the manufacturing Midwest, um, like increasing automation, globalization. So uh, they're having those challenges there. Uh, but it's it's a city definitely on the upswing. It had, you know, probably the worst time in the city's history. It was right when the mayor first ran for city council, the beginning of Mayor Michael Tubbs' political career, the city had recently uh, declared bankruptcy because they had been the foreclosure capital of the country in the United States during the mortgage crisis. And then about three or four years later, declared bankruptcy, the first major city to do so um, before Detroit. 
So, you know, of course, unemployment at that point was up to like 17, 19%. So the city had really a lot of challenges when when Mayor Michael Tubbs first became a city council member. But now it's one of the most fiscally healthy cities in the country. And there's really a a lot of interest in the city. And I think, um, you know, in this idea of cities as labs, testing social policy, because then not only is there the SEED program, the Universal Basic Income program, they're also, um, they have a scholar program where scholarships are available to every high school senior in the Stockton Unified School District. And then they have a program called Advanced Peace, where there's um, cash stipends for uh, former violent offenders. It's kind of a, a way to help them sort of regain a productive life. So really SEED is just one of these kind of multi-pronged progressive Uh, policy programs that they're trying right now. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. So jumping in into your profiles, uh, you've got this this series of really in-depth looks at at people's lives and how this $500 a month is is changing things for them. Um, And what struck me was that I had a pretty good sense of the aggregate picture, both of things, you know, in, in Stockton, how things are going with seed, but also just with cash transfer programs, generally, I think the findings are there are pretty in line with what we've seen with, with other um, with other pilot studies. Um, but when you look at individual people, you realize that the aggregate it's, it's an aggregate, and you have this full range of life experiences and also what people are are doing with that money and what it means to them. Uh, I'm wondering if you, you had that same experience of of kind of going from that that general picture to all these individual lives? Very much so. I, I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it's rare to talk with people in an intimate way about their money and the choices that they make with their money. If, uh, you know, the decisions that they made that worked out for them or perhaps um, gave, they gained fi- some financial struggle through or, or just life experiences that happened, all the financial shocks. Um, that families experience. And so just hearing in a detailed way um, these different financial biographies, which is also, you know, a lot about what people's kind of hopes and dreams are, what their ambitions are for their lives or for their children. A lot of that comes out when you just ask people about their financial situation. So uh, I think that the, I too had a sort of sense of the kind of landscape of financial hardship, particularly since this is an area that I do write about and report on, but being given the opportunity to follow people over a length of time and to really ask them every last question I could come up with about um, their finances and what choices they were making gave me kind of an insight, really an empathy for how hard people work and how much the economy is failing people for a large part. I think that really comes out. Um, there's that profile of the woman who worked at Oracle Arena and sounded like she worked really hard and, you know, her body was... Had, uh, had really taken some abuse just from all this this hard labor that she'd done over her career, and now she's uh, kind of stuck without benefits uh, from from her employer. And you know, she had to move out of Oakland uh, just for to get some lower rent. Um, and I, I think she sort of represents a, a lot of what 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 cash programs can do, where it's like she's got some debt, she she wants to see her family a bit more. And just a little bit of cash can really change her life. Uh, and and she's just struck me. Yeah, go ahead. She struck me as someone who is really emblematic of what you want. Yeah. I mean, I just actually caught up with her last night. I talked to her for the first time a couple of months. Laura is her name. And I think her case, 
to me, really demonstrated, you know, this is somebody who really played by the rules, as she says. You know, she worked hard at a good union job for 20 years um, and had had other, lots of other employment before that, has worked full-time or multiple jobs her whole life, supported her kids, her grandkids, and now, upon retiring, does not have enough to live. I mean, she pays, um, she's very rent burdened. She pays over 50% of her, she does get social security and a small union pension. Um, but after Medicare, she takes home something like $1,300. Her rent is now up to $850. So after she pays her car note, her PG, uh, PG&E, which is the electric bill in California, her insurance, she hardly has any money left over from, for food. And she normally has to go to a food bank um, to be able to, to be able to, eat and survive. And she's very worried about becoming homeless. Um, in fact, there was just a fire in her apartment complex where there's, and this is the cheapest place that she could find to live in Stockton, where she moved in search of cheaper rents from Oakland. Uh, there was a fire and she had gotten apartment insurance because the previous management had required it. New management did not. And so she was very lucky in that she can stay in an extended motel while they try to um, kind of, you know, make the apartments uh, habitable again. But a lot of her neighbors did not have apartment insurance and are now homeless. And this is just the kind of financial shock that happened, you know, through no fault of, of any of these people. They just lived in a complex where there was someone they don't quite know what happened, you know, had a fire, their apartments were affected, and now they're out on the street. Um, you know, so the, the $500 has come in very handy for her. I mean, one, to make her have give a little bit of a cushion right now because, you know, when you're out of your home and this is the kind of time where suddenly you have these unexpected expenses or it takes a while to get your insurance money. But also she's paying off her car and she's paying off her credit card debt so that when the program ends, you know, she'll have a little bit more that she can hold on to what she takes home. So um, for, for me, her story was really emblematic of the way that our, our economy just doesn't work. I mean, somebody who worked hard their entire life should be able to retire and, and she would keep working if she could, but she has, you know, as you said, her body's been so beaten up. Um, she had a knee injury that she sustained, um, not actually on her job when she was campaigning for her union for Barack Obama in 2012. She slipped and fell and needs a knee replacement, but she can't get it covered. Um, so she can't stand for long periods. And it's, she just doesn't really know what she could do for employment. She's tried. So there was her. And then I guess on the, the flip side, or, or maybe the flip side is the wrong term, but with her, it's like, of course, she should have a little extra cash. Like she, she deserves it. It's you know, it's just going off to to pay off her debts and help improve her living situation a little bit. Um, and I think she's a, a perfect representation of ha- the power of cash. Um, then there is Greg, who um, you know is in some similar situations of you know is is trying to improve his living situation trying to take care of his kids you know trying to kind of get his life in order in a number of ways and cash obviously helps but he also has this habit or whatever you want to call it of buying and selling cars and just over the i don't know the month or so that you were in contact with him it, it seemed like he went through something like 10 different cars um and you know took a maybe a small loss on those and and it seemed like the money was was going to you know an extra car or two and on one hand, it's it's easy if you want to poke holes in in the whole concept of cash transfers to say, well, well, look at this guy. You know, why should the government be supporting his car habit? Uh, on the other hand, you know, the, that money would you could say it would just go toward running the program if it was a more targeted program. And also, 
with with cash the the whole idea is you get to do what you want and it's you know that that's up to you so i was wondering how um if you were thinking if he made you think about the program in general seeing what it went to yeah well um just to correct he actually bought 10 cars probably over the course of about i spoke with him over like nine month period um i followed these people for about nine months uh starting in february and until now um you know, he was a person uh, that I really changed the way that I felt over the course of getting to know him and my even my feeling about um, the choices that he was making with his cash. Uh, when he did use, you know, his some of his cash to pay off, um, he had a little bit of debt and he had incurred a big school loan debt um, from Corinthian from Everest College, which was part of the Corinthian Network, which was a for-profit college that actually Senator Kamala Harris, then Attorney General of California, had um, sued and won because it was uh, false advertising, promising kind of great 100% job placement, which they were not able to deliver on. And they were really preying upon people like him who were did not have... Um, Parents had not gone to college, minority, low income. And so he incurred a $9,000 debt from um, Everest College. And so he was using some of his seed money to pay that off. You know, even though it was closed down by the state of California and then the federal government, he's still on the hook for the loan money that he got out. And he actually had his taxes garnished for it. Um, so part of, I think, the interest to me made me think about a couple of things. Like one, if we had a universal basic income, then perhaps we would be more invested in general as a society um, in making sure that these kinds of predatory institutions, be them colleges or, you know, uh, home loans or auto loans, um, would not would not exist because we would have some feeling of investment in that money and we wouldn't want people to be exploited. Um, so I, I did think about that and, and his situation. I also thought that, you know, in his case, um, he was the person I talked to out of the five. And these were all randomly selected people. They were just a randomly put together cohort. They had opted into the cohort, but then they were completely random. Um, so I didn't, you know, I just followed them from the beginning. I had no idea where their stories were going to go. Um, but he is someone um, that I came to think you know, that he already had this habit of buying and selling cars and he had worked hard, uh, works very hard. Um, unlike his, the house that he grew up in, he had a lot of uh, housing insecurity growing up and food insecurity. And so the fact that he was able to provide stability to his kids, both in terms of, you know, making sure there was enough food and clothes and whatever they needed and, and had um, a stable home, at least for the last five or six years, um, was a big improvement. So, you know, I, I found myself um, not really judging his, that he had this kind of fun on the side of buying and selling cheap used cars seemed to me almost like a safety valve for um, him being able to live this life that was not very rewarding or fun, just working a very hard physical, physically taxing job. Um, and there's, you know, there's not, he's not, didn't, didn't go to college. I mean, there's not a lot of opportunity for him in Stockton, sort of career advancement. Um, you know, his horizons are fairly limited given where he's coming from. So I, I found that uh, I was interested in the response to his story because as you point out, the point of cash trans transfers is to sort of get out of the business of deciding who's deserving and who isn't deserving and kind of going into people's homes and their personal lives and judging them. Um, because it's, it's very hard to say from the outside whether somebody's making the right choice or not for their family. And so 
thought, you know, if this allows him to, to take care of his kids and be, be happier, then who am I to say that that's not a good use of his money? It's tricky talking about his story because there's a lot of judgment that people have um, responded, you know. But I will say that his story also made me think, and all these really, like, if somebody, you know, had shown a spotlight on my life over the year and a half they spent reporting the story, what kinds of judgments might they have? Like, for example, I chose to renovate a bathroom and put in some walk-in closets this year um, at the price of kind of equivalent to one year of, you know, probably college education for my 13-year-old, rather than putting that money aside for her college fund. Like, was that a wise choice? A lot of people would say no. Um, But because, you know, I'm middle class, nobody's really judging my choices. And so I did find myself again and again kind of coming back to, like, I want to extend that same lack of judgment to these recipients. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, that, that point about you being middle class, and you know, I, I'm middle class as well, and if someone shined a light on how I spend all my money, I'm sure I'd be horribly embarrassed by, you know, just my coffee habit alone is, is enough to, I, I don't even want to calculate. Um, and I think you get a pass, you know, the the more money you have, the more people are saying like, okay, like, you didn't need that third house, but, you know, whatever, you, you have so much money anyway, what's what's the big deal? Whereas if you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck, um, or, you know, you barely have enough for groceries and, you know, you buy one pack of cigarettes or, you know, you, in, in his case, Greg's case, you know, buy a car for a thousand dollars and sell it for 800. Um, you know, I feel like everyone, everyone gets one vice. I feel like is, is, is my, my, my take on it. I mean, I, I did, I also just checked in with him and he did tell me that he has stopped buying and selling cars. Um, so I do think the experience of kind of seeing himself reflected or, uh, you know, I think also um, just having a little more stability where, you know, you're able to perhaps um, have a better ability to plan. I, I think that I saw that happen with a lot of the recipients is just having less financial volatility. I mean, it takes a while. It's, it's you know, in the scheme of things, it's quite a short pilot, 18 months. And so I just covered them probably in the first eight months of their choices. So I think it does take people a while to kind of get used to the to the, this new reality of getting the money and figuring out what they want to do with it. I didn't see anyone that went, you know, went out on a shopping spree or um, spent it in what seemed to be an irresponsible way. Um, they did, it took me a while to kind of get them to know them well enough to understand, oh, yeah, this really actually does make sense for their life as it is now. Like maybe as they get more financial stability, they'll think about you know, just saving or sort of more investing for the future. But I think if that's not really currently on your horizon, you don't have those ambitions or plans. I'm not sure an 18-month pilot is enough, you know, with not in the scheme of things, it's a huge sum of money, $500 a month, to suddenly become someone who, you know, is planning for the future. If that hadn't been an experience that you were already kind of engaged in, or you had a role model in your family. Yeah, and I did want to get a little more into the psychology of receiving this money. Do you think these recipients thought of this as as special money, like that, you know, maybe they should treat it differently from from other money or just how, how are, how are they conceptualizing these cash transfers? Uh, I think it really varied from person to person, but um, there's another, one of the recipients that I profiled, her name is Danielle. And for her, actually the fact that there was a deadline, uh, just there was an 18 month trial that it wasn't the money didn't just extend forever um, did encourage her to treat it as special money. And she'd already been, had decided about a year earlier 
to very aggressively try to pay down their debt, which amounted to about $60,000. That was accumulated for a variety of reasons, Um, some health, a lot of healthcare bills, um, some, her parents were both out of work and she was sort of supporting their household for a while, some personal loans when she was young and dumb about money, as she says. Um, so they had acquired this debt and I think that they just didn't see any possibility of ever paying it off, including their car. I should say 13,000 of that was their car. Um, and it, you know, they'd pay the minimum and it just didn't ever seem possible given what they took home and they had two young children that they'd be able to pay it off. Uh, but then her husband was able to pick up an extra shift and they started using that money to pay down their debt. And so then when the $500 came along, suddenly they were able to really double what they were paying down and kind of go on this austerity diet where they were, you know, really increasing their payments and at the same time decreasing their expenses. And so they did treat it as this kind of special, you know, fund so they could really put themselves in a different situation when it ended. And her goal, and she's on track to meet it, to be debt-free uh, by the time one month after the pilot ended. So I think in that case, the money really served as this kind of catalyst um, for somebody who already had educated themselves about, you know, financial planning. And um, even she follows a lot of uh, Instagram accounts that have tips for becoming debt-free, um, ways to spend less at the supermarket and those types of things. You know, it, it, she was really in a great position and it was hit at the right time of her life. To, to allow her to make great use of the money that way. Yeah, debt seems to come up again and again here, where it's like, I think with all of your your profiles, it, it feels like I think everyone was in debt. Is that right? And um, for some people, like, okay, maybe now I can I can get out of debt. And there's at least one Grace who just had you know just like a quarter million dollars in debt, and it's like she, her plans are you know in the millions and billions of dollars. So she's not even thinking about that that quarter million, but it, you know it gives her grocery money. But I just feel like that's you mentioned predatory practices before, and I, I just feel like that's debt is such a big part of the picture when you start talking about giving cash to people. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that um, any kind of universal basic income would have to be coupled at with you know a look at things like the cost for higher education, healthcare costs, because. For example, this woman, Danielle, you know, she has health insurance as does her husband. And, um, but she had, uh, her sister died at 25 from a heart attack and she was a new mother. She had terrible chest pains. And so it was a natural, you know, assumption to or certainly a, a normal concern or worry to think that this could be a genetic condition. She could be having a heart attack too. And so she went to the emergency room. She was very embarrassed to say that it was turned out to be heartburn. She'd never had it before. She didn't know what it felt like. But that she ended up with a three thousand dollar ER bill um, at the end of that because her deductible is so high. And that came on top of the births of her children. So, you know, suddenly to have like six thousand dollars in medical debt um, for stuff for, for births of your children and kind of an emergency, a reasonable emergency. I mean, any kind of a lot of working people that just puts them in the hole that it becomes very hard to then climb out. So I think that, you know, a universal basic, we have to look at those things in tandem with a universal basic income. Otherwise, it's just going to be kind of pouring money from one pot into another. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the great fear is that, you know, we, we finally get our UBI and it just goes to landlords and debt collectors. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's a policy we need, but I also think it it requires us to take a hard look at some things that we should probably be looking at anyway, but it, it really forces that issue. I mean, I, I do think of it as an opportunity to rethink our social contract with each other. And so, you know, one, the right to be able to survive, not even thrive, but just survive. 
is a basic human right. And I think with more talk of universal health care and universal pre-K and, um, you know, perhaps universal uh, higher education, that, the, you know, the idea is gaining traction that everybody should have a right to survive. Um, but at the same time, yeah, just looking at some of these other um, either predatory practices or things like the lack of affordable housing. I mean, these they would all seem to be part of the same kind of conversation. That was Owen speaking with Liz Broyard on a Basic Income podcast. So I felt like this was just another great example of how important it is to have the conversation about basic income be about more than these these high-level society-wide effects, to actually have it be rooted in what is what is the current lived experience of, of people who are struggling and what their lived experience might actually be if we were to really have this policy in place. Yeah, I found myself thinking anew about some pretty basic stuff about basic income just through these profiles, because I'm so used to the high level economic picture of, you know, people spend it on food, people take care of their basic needs, they don't drink it away, blah, blah, blah. And then you get these very nuanced profiles of, yes, they're taking care of their basic needs, they're paying down debt, but they're also, you know, indulging in their hobbies, they're they're living their very specific lives, and at times doing things that you're sort of hoping they won't do with the money. But that's, that's part of giving people money. Right. These are people, just just like <laughs> us. And I, I thought it was a really important point that you all covered during the conversation about what a, what a double standard, really, we have about how people spend their money when you're poor versus when you're middle class or rich. And that if, if we think about ourselves and people we know, of course, we're going to make bad decisions from time to time. We're people. But somehow, when we're talking about people in poverty... It seems like if if people make any single slip up, suddenly they're seen as, oh, like not deserving, like this person shouldn't be trusted uh, in such a different way than than you have with people around you. Yeah, just the thought of someone looking at my own expenses on, you know, what I spend money on on that level of detail is kind of terrifying. It's a very intimate thing. And, you know, it speaks to her, to, to Bliss's ability as a journalist to gain that trust of these people. Um, and and you're right. It, it's when someone is, especially when they're getting unconditional cash. It's like, okay, we're giving this money to you, but you got to be super responsible. It's like otherwise, you know, it, it's it's like we're we're stern parents or something. All of a sudden, with these people, whereas if if you're rich, it's like, oh yeah, buy another boat. You know, maybe like someone will get a job out of that. So um, yeah, it's it's just it, it's one of those things where I found myself thinking about my own preconceptions more than I thought I was going to. The other thing that stood out to me in the conversation was what might happen with predatory financial institutions talking about these these private colleges that are really just scams. And I think we've talked in the past about how we think there could be a need, if UBI is introduced widely, to put some sort of protections in place, because if people are suddenly flush with cash, you're going to have folks coming out of the woodwork to try to take advantage of them. But the point that if everyone had a UBI, at least over the longer term, whether that would create more of a sort of immune response in our society to some of these things, because a lot of these institutions do at some level rely on desperation as their business model. And so if we are ensuring that everyone does have that floor beneath them, whether it gets that much harder to actually make that business model work. 
Yeah, and you'd hope that UBI could, you know, do away with some of the most egregious, you know, payday lenders and, and people who really take advantage of of cash-strapped people. But you're right, there are there's the flip side of there's this available revenue that a lot of people are going to have their eyes on and there will be some grift. I hate to say it, but there is no way to prevent 100% of it. Um, and it's already happening now, obviously. So it's not something that will just spring out of the ether when we get a UBI, hopefully. But it is something that we have to think about a lot. And it may be different in, in different places. You know, there, there might be small towns where there's one specific grift that you have to deal with. And there might be national companies like, you know, for-profit colleges or housing institutions that will, will target low-income people specifically to take away their basic income. And it's going to be a lot of case-by-case stuff and also accepting that you're not going to get every single thing. Yeah. We just want to hopefully think through as much as possible. And so come into it with our eyes open and, and with as, as much protection as as reasonably you can establish with without clamping down on on people's ability to actually choose what they want to do with the money. And I found myself comparing that that leakage in the money to what we already have with government programs, where if $1,000 comes in and $800 comes out, we say, like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's someone's job to administer that program. It's not ideal, but, you know, so be it. Um, if we had that same attitude toward, you know, I, I give you a thousand dollars and half of it goes to rent and but, you know, a hundred dollars goes to cigarettes like that's too bad. But you know, that that's your money. Like <laughs> middle class people don't get shamed like that when they spend money on cigarettes. Yeah, that's certainly the case. All right. That'll do it for this episode. And actually, we are going to be going on break for a while after this. So we'll have at least a few weeks where we'll be off. And then we'll be back very soon in the new year with new episodes. And as a reminder, if you want to support the work we do at the Basic Income Podcast, please go to glow.fm slash basic income, and you can support us with a small monthly donation. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. It helps other people find the show. And we'll talk to you in a few weeks with some new episodes. <laughs> <laughs>